better for them never, have no, never, never to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turned from it. What words are these? I have to, I think you've heard me say in the past, I find it almost difficult to believe that these words can come out of the mouth of an apostle. That he would say that it would be better for a man never to have heard the way of truth, the way of truth, that way of righteousness, that way of holiness, that way of happiness, that way of eternal life. You mean it would be better for a man never to have heard these things? Yes, if he defects from these things. Yes, if he perverts these things. Yes, if he turns from these things. And so again, when Peter introduces us to this whole reality of what these false teachers are all about, he shows to us the, the, the horrible end that, the, that await these men. Oh, it's a fearful thing. It's a dreadful thing to consider these things. And as we work through this passage of Scripture, we have to do a number of things. Number one, we have to make sure that we understand this passage as it stands on the pages of Scripture. We have to make sure that we don't bring to this passage of Scripture our own preconceived ideas. We have to make sure that we look at this passage of Scripture not just as looking at others, but we have to allow this passage of Scripture to bear upon our own conscience so that we have to deal with what the, with, uh, what the truth of God is on the pages of, of His Holy Word. And so we have to look at it as it stands on the page, we might say. We have to consider it in its biblical context. But there's something else that we have to do with this passage of Scripture. We also have to deal with the theological question that this passage of Scripture poses. Now again, there's no question in the text, but it leads us to a question. And the question that it leads us to is essentially this. What was the true nature of these men? And not only what was the true nature of these men as men that lived back then, you see, one of the challenges that we always face when we begin to ask ourselves these theological questions is we allow a level of distance between ourselves and the question. We make the question somewhat abstract. Oh, what about those men? What about those men back there? What did it have to say about them as they lived then? But we have to deal with the passage of Scripture theologically as it concerns ourselves as well. We have to ask ourselves this question. This question, which we, oftentimes you've probably asked yourself. Is it possible for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl to once embrace Jesus Christ by faith and then lose that experience of salvation? Is it possible? You see, that question comes to us on, this, on the pages of Scripture here. This whole idea that these men are turning from the Holy Commandment. These men are going back to their own sin. These men are acting as pigs and as dogs. Did these men, were these men once saved? And notice again, I have to, be, I have to check myself here. I'm putting it, once again, in the abstract of, of a theological question. And I don't want to do that. I want to cause the theology of this passage to impact the way you and I think. I want to cause the theology of this passage to impact the way you and I live. And so we have to deal with this question. But not only do we have to deal with this, uh, with this passage biblically, what the text tells us, not only do we have to uh, deal with the, uh, with the passage theologically, we also have to deal with the passage personally. And from my standpoint, I must deal with this passage of Scripture with you pastorally. I must call you as a pastor to engage this text of Scripture. I must call you as a pastor consider, to consider what this passage of Scripture is saying and what it's not saying. And so by God's grace today, I hope to work through this passage of Scripture, as I said before, to show you again, biblically, exegetically I might say, what's on the, what's on the face of the Scripture here. What is this passage saying? Secondly, we will engage the theological question. And then thirdly, by the grace of God, pastoral, and then hopefully personal application will be made. 
But again, even before we get to the text itself, this question once again, or this issue once again, better never to have known the way of righteousness than to have turned from it. Why does Peter say these things? Well, first and foremost, we have to understand these are very much an echo of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, are they not? Remember what he said about those who cause little ones to stumble better than a millstone were tied around their neck. Remember what he said about Judas, better that that man were never born. Remember what he said about about Capernaum, better, again, for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And so again, Peter is just echoing the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so while I might express something of a surprise to see these words, these words are very truly the words and the reflection of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the reason why it's better is essentially threefold. Number one, it's better never to have known the truth than to turn from it, number one, because it shows disregard and despite for the light of the gospel itself. The light of the gospel itself. You have to understand when an individual sins in ignorance, it's one thing. But when an individual sins with the light of the gospel, it's certainly something else. You know, so oftentimes we preach and we ought to preach against the sins of society. We must. We are not fulfilling our function as the church of Jesus Christ if we do not preach against the sins of society. But but do you know that should you and I engage in any of the sins of society, it's much worse for us because we sin against a greater light. And so again, these men to have turned from this holy commandment, they sinned against great light. Secondly, the thing that we see concerning this idea of sinning against this light. When individuals do this, there is a sense in which they show disdain for the light. They show disdain for the very light that God has given. And so again, better never to have engaged or had the light than to engage it and then to have disdain for it. And then the third reason why, and we've seen something of this already in the lives of these false teachers, the third reason why is because when individuals who make an outward profession of faith And you have to understand, the world evaluates you by your profession, by what you do on a Sunday. Your neighbors see you coming to church, and they may not know know much about you, but they say, oh yeah, uh, so-and-so, they go to church every Sunday. They're churchgoers. They're good neighbors. They're churchgoers. And let you or I fall into some scandalous sin. And while you and I in the church have to evaluate theologically, was there ever really salvation? The individual who defects and who defects in a, in a serious way, were they ever saved? Well, your, your neighbors aren't asking that question. All they're saying is this. Well, yeah, that was a good, the guy who said he was a Christian, and look what he did. They will evaluate you at the level of how they see you. And so when that happens, when men turn from the light of the gospel to, the, to back to their own sin, what the world sees is this. Oh, yeah. You know, there's those people, those Christians, they say anything and they live any way they want. They bring, again, they do despite, they bring disdain and they bring scandal to the cause of Christ. And so because of these things, as we said before, it is a very, very serious sin to sin. It is a very, very serious thing to sin against the light of the gospel. But now what I want to do is I want to get into the text itself and I want to take a look. As I said before, first and foremost, at what this text is telling us. As I said before, a lot of application has to be made. Some theology has to be engaged in. But before we do that, we have to ask ourselves the question, what essentially is this text saying? Well, you may, you may or you may not know that this passage of Scripture has been used by two uh, theological camps within, within the Christian church. 
And these two theological camps kind of approach this text from two different perspectives. And one perspective is, is that an individual can truly experience the grace of God and then fall away from that grace. They were saved at one time and then through a process of sin, neglect, whatever it may be, they lose their salvation. Another uh, perspective understands this passage of scripture as looking at it as how close a person can actually look like a true believer and yet when it's all said and done not be a true believer. But, we, but as I said before, as we, that's the theological question. Let's set that aside for a moment and let's deal with the text itself. And if I can say this, whenever you're dealing with theological questions, this is what you have to do. You have to allow the text to guide you. You have to let the text speak. So let's look at this text of scripture and let's see what Peter is telling us about these false teachers. Notice what he says here in verses 20 and through 22. Peter says this, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. I want you to notice seven things here that we see about these false teachers. Seven things that we see about them. And we have to allow the text to speak to us. We can't, in one sense, um, uh, you know, speak to the text. We have to let the text speak to us. And so notice now what Peter is saying about these men. Number one, the first thing he tells us is essentially this, that they had a knowledge of Jesus Christ even as Lord and Savior. They had a knowledge of Jesus Christ even as Lord and Savior. Now this is somewhat significant for a number of reasons. And the reason, excuse me, and the reason why it is significant is twofold. Number one, Peter is using a word, the word knowledge, and interestingly enough, when Peter uses the word knowledge, there are, there are at least two words that are commonly uh, understood when the word knowledge is used. There's more than two words for knowledge in the, in the Greek New Testament. But there are two words very closely related. One word is gnosis, and the other word is epinosis. Now, sometimes a distinction is drawn between these two words. Other times, these words can sometimes be used synonymously. But usually what happens is that when the word epinosis is used... It always, or excuse me, it oftentimes points to the fact that a more focused, a more particular, a clearer, and more technical knowledge is being spoken of. And now what's interesting is this. As I said before, sometimes there's no distinction between gnosis and epinosis. However, when Peter uses the word epinosis, particularly because he's dealing with an ancient heresy known as Gnosticism, he is giving the word a more, that more technical element to it. And so there is a sense in which we can say that the knowledge that these men have, and sometimes the way this passage of Scripture is approached is to say, well, they just had a superficial knowledge. The text really won't allow us to say that. There was some specificity about their knowledge. Their knowledge, again, is very, very... Very much what we would hope and want to see as we are preaching the gospel and people say they understand it. So when, people, when Peter says they have a knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we can't dismiss that by saying it was just a superficial knowledge. I don't think the text will allow us to say that. The second thing I want you to see is this. They have a knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is one of those places in the New Testament where we have a full designation of our Lord Jesus Christ. His titles are all brought together. 
There's some significance in that. And I think in four times in this second epistle, Peter uses that full expression for our Lord Jesus Christ. I think he does it in chapter 1, verse 1, chapter uh, 1, verse, uh, uh, verse, uh, verse 11, chapter, here chapter 2, verse 20, and then in uh, chapter 3, I think it's verse 18. So Peter oftentimes uses this expression as an expression that comprehends Jesus Christ in all of his saving offices. And so these men, these false teachers, they have a knowledge more than just a passing uh, acquaintance, they have a knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's kind of interesting. There are a couple of uh, translations that uh, of this passage of Scripture. Um, they're not very uh, very well known uh, translations, but it's interesting that uh, two of them uh, interpret or translate this uh, verse in ways that are almost uh, opposite one another. One translation says in this passage of Scripture that these men had a full knowledge. Of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the, the idea there is that the translator is picking up on the word epinosis. Another translate, uh, tra- translation, excuse me. <clears throat> Another translation, a little better known, known as uh, it's, uh, Young's literal translation. Young's translates this passage of scripture as these men had an acquaintance, or excuse me, an, an acknowledgement of the Lord Jesus Christ. An acknowledgement of. Now, it's interesting because I don't think that the word acknowledgement gives enough weight to the Greek word epinosis. And I think that the other translation is probably catching a little better sense of what we see in the Greek text here. So that's the first thing we see about these men. They have a knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The second thing that we see about these men is this. They escape the pollutions of this world. Did you see that in the passage of Scripture as well? <clears throat> Again, that's actually the first thing we see in verse 20. For if, for, excuse me, for if after they escaped the pollutions of this world... So again, there was a real, again, removing of themselves from the corruption of this world. Oftentimes, whenever we speak about coming to salvation, we, we talk to people sometimes and they say, you know, when I came to the faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I just felt so clean from all my sinful past. And there's a sense in which there's something of that being conveyed here. And so these men, again, not only have a knowledge, there is something by way of the effect of that knowledge in the way they live. They, were, they had escaped from the pollutions of this world. What does that remind us of? That reminds us that this, that this world is a sinful and polluted place. And that a man or a woman or a boy or a girl can be corrupted as they go through this world. But the scripture says that these men had escaped the pollutions of this world. The third thing that we see about these false teachers is also found again in verses, uh, <clears throat> verses uh, 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 verse, uh, 20. In 21, and actually in verse 21, we see this. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Again, what that means is essentially this. They knew the way of righteousness. Do you understand the things that Peter is telling us about these men? And can you see why some well-meaning and well-intended and very sincere Christians say, these men were truly saved? Now, I'm going to, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. I'm going to make the case that I don't think that they were saved. But I don't want to get there yet. I want you to deal with what this text says. I want you to feel the pressure of this text. I want you to interact with the fact that there are people who very much look like and and seem to have the experience that you claim. Excuse me. 
And so we see that these men, uh, they, it says about these men that they know the way of righteousness. What is the way of righteousness? Well, the way of righteousness is the Christian faith, isn't it? As I said before, it's a holy way. It's a righteous way. It's a way that leads to eternal life. The way of righteousness is the way that God has called us to live. He's called us to walk toward, uh, to heaven by way of the way of righteousness. And these men, the scriptures say, they knew the way of righteousness. We also see this, that these men not only knew the way of righteousness, but also look here again in verse 21. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. So if they turned from the holy commandment delivered unto them, it means at one time they embraced the holy commandment that was delivered unto them. Now there are a number of interesting things here. Because the word turn here in, is, is, is related to the word that we often think in our mind that is associated with repentance. Remember what Paul said to, uh, uh, to, to the Thessalonians. You have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. There was a turn. The word turn oftentimes involves all the concepts and all the ideas of repentance. What is it to repent? In one sense, it is a change of mind that issues forth and a change of life. It's a turning. It's a turning from what we once were to what God calls us to be. Well, these men turned, but what did they turn from? They turned from the Holy Commandment. It means, again, the implication is very clear. They once embraced the Holy Commandment. What is the Holy Commandment? Well, in a very large way, we can say it's the Word of God in its totality. In its totality. The Word of God is the commands that God has for you and to you. But in another sense, we can say this, that the Holy Commandment is that commandment to, to, to repent and believe the Gospel. There is a sense in which God commands belief. You know, so oftentimes you want to present God as pleading and imploring with sinners. And he does. We saw that a few weeks ago, didn't we? In Ezekiel uh, chapter 33, where, where God himself says, Turn ye, turn ye, why will you die, he says. He implores with sinning Israel. And there are other times when God commands. <clears throat> God commands all men everywhere to repent, Paul says in Acts chapter 17. And so this holy commandment, I, I believe, is the, is the command to repent and believe the gospel. So look at the things of these false teachers. When we deal with this text of scripture, you can see why questions will be percolating in our mind. But we still have to deal with the text as the text. What else does this text tell us about these men? Well, this text, the text also tells us this, that these men are once again entangled and overcome by their sin. Entangled and overcome by their sin. The word for entangled here is kind of an interesting word. We know it in our English language is the word implicate. And the idea of being implicated in something means to be tied into something you just can't get away from anymore. And the picture is to be entangled. And they are not only entangled in their sin, they are overcome by their sin. That's not all that we see about these men. Not only are they overcome by their sin, but they turn, as I said before, they once engaged the Holy Commandment, but now they've turned from that Holy Commandment. And then the last thing we see about these men is in verse 22, like a dog and like a pig, they return, and I'm going to tip my hand a little bit here, they return and they act like the brute beast that they always were. You see, I'm convinced that what we're seeing here in this passage of Scripture is not the experience of genuine salvation, but of a religious experience that very closely parallels true salvation. It is exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ talks about in the parable of the tares uh, and the wheat. And you remember in that parable of the tares and the wheat? 
And you remember when the, when the man uh, sowed uh, his, uh, the, the wheat and somebody comes and they, they sow the tares and his workers come and they say, should we separate the, the wheat and the tares at this time? And, and what does the master say? No, lest pulling up the tear, you pull up also the wheat. Now, you, many of you probably know this. You know, the interesting kind of picture about that parable was what? It's essentially this. From what I understand, I've not seen it with my own eyes, but from what I understand, tear and wheat look very much the same until they come to fruition. And then the wheat looks like something and the tear looks like something. But there's that time when they look exactly the like. And I think it's the same thing in the spiritual world and in the Christian church as well. There are those in the external professing visible church who look very much like true believers. And they associate with the people of God. And there's a, and, and for a time, in their association with the people of God, they conduct themselves according to the standards of the people of God. And they leave off old sins and they leave off old habits, but they're never truly converted men. They're never, they're never truly converted in, 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 in their experience. <clears throat> and when all is said and done, the true nature comes to the fore. When all is said and done, the dog does what the dog does. The pig does what the, what the pig does. But the child of God does what the child of God does. Or you see, many of the conflicts that you and I face, many of the difficulties that we face, and we see ourselves cast down at times. We see ourselves, we see our own sins testifying against us. And sometimes we think, oh, can we ever make it through this thing? And there's the word of God coming to us, the spirit of God taking the word and placing it in our heart and renewing faith and rekindling a love that was once there. The Lord Jesus Christ seeing us as a, as a broken reed and a, and a smoking flax. He doesn't destroy us, does he? He says, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so again, we leave off all these things. And we say, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to say it as graphically as I almost want to say We say, be gone to all of our old uh, desires. Be gone to all of our sinful ways. And let my soul go to the shepherd of my soul, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, these men, when it's all said and done, what drives these men? It's their own sinful nature. What drives these men? It's their own passions. Remember how we've been uh, discussing their sins over and over again. The sins of greed, the, uh, the, sin, the sins of arrogance, <clears throat> the sins of sensuality. These are the things that drive these men. They have one thing in mind. And it isn't even, it's certainly not your soul, and it's not even their soul. The only thing they have in mind is their own pleasure in this world. And that's why these men are despicable. That's why Peter calls them uh, these dogs, these mangy mutts, the, these pigs that return to the sow, that return to the mire. Why? Because all they care about is their own gratification in this world. Just like the dog, he just wants to, he just wants to eat whatever he can eat. Just like the pig, all he wants to do is feel good in the mud. And so again, these men, again, the passage of Scripture, I think, ultimately reveals itself to us as to what we're dealing with. But I don't want you to lose sight of of the language that's used to describe these men. You see, this is the, it's, as I said before, these guys, these men, these women do not come into our presence blaring the fact that they are false teachers. They look very much like their genuine article. And what you and I must pray for is the discernment of the Spirit of God under the inspiration of the Scripture to evaluate, to filter, to understand. Yes, that's a true message. No, that's not a true message. I don't care how good it sounds. And so again, that's what the text tells us about the nature of these men. Let me give you that list again. These false teachers, 
Paul Peter says of them, they have a, they have a knowledge of Jesus Christ as even the Savior and Lord. They, they have a knowledge of, excuse me, through this knowledge they have escaped the pollutions of this world. They know the way of righteousness. They once followed the holy commandment. But however, they are entangled in their own sin. They turn from that commandment. And like a dog and a pig, they return and act according to their true nature. But this leads us again, not only, this leads us now to the question, how do we explain this theologically? How do we understand the nature of these men in the whole uh, uh, construct of our theological uh, understanding of the word of God? Where does this fit in, we might say? And how do we understand it? Well, as I said before, the theological question that comes before us is essentially this. Can a man lose his salvation? You see, this, there, there's a sense in which the, the, the question rises from the text. These men turned from something. These men were once clean from their pollutions. Now they go back. Does that mean they were once saved and then they turned their back? Well, again, you can understand why some of our friends would say, well, that's exactly what the text says. But again, I think as we look deeper into the text, I think we have to come to a different conclusion. And I don't say this in order to shut down any kind of thinking along the other way. I don't say this to, in order to disparage those who might think contrary to the point that I'm making here. Again, as I said before, if you look at, the, if you look at least of, uh, three or four of these things that, we, that we've examined here, you can understand why somebody would say that these men were once genuinely saved. But I think we'll show from the text itself and from other texts that such was not the case. But rather, these men very much looked like they were saved. But in reality, they were not. And that's going to lead us. I keep getting ahead of myself, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's going to lead us to some of these pastoral um, applications. You see, you and I have to evaluate ourselves. Isn't this what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5? Prove yourselves, examine yourselves to see whether or not you be in the faith. You see, there is a time, brothers and sisters, in the lives of every one of us where we must stand honestly before God and honestly before the Scripture and say, Father, where do I stand with you? You see, it's necessary that we do this. My friends, you know we're not, we're not playing church here, are we? I hope not. I hope we all realize we're dealing with eternal matters here. I hope the weight of eternity presses down on every one of our consciences that we would think and understand the things that we are dealing with here are of eternal consequence. But let's take a look at this theological question. Now again, what do these facts teach us about the false teachers? They turned away from what they once professed. Does this mean that they were once saved, but now are lost and no longer saved? Well, again, let me, let me again engage your thinking. I think in one sense, there's much in this text where we can say that, yes, maybe these men were once saved. Allow me to think out loud with you here. These men, we, I think there's much in the text that we can say that these men were once saved. I think first and foremost, what leads us to at least begin to entertain the idea is the matter that we considered in verse 1 of chapter 2. You remember, weeks ago. Remember, we did that four-week study on the doctrine of the atonement. That passage of scripture where, where Peter says, these men deny the Lord that bought them. That bought them. What's, what's this buying? Well, I think most of us, most of you have a, enough of an understanding of, of, the, of, the, of the ideas of the gospel that in the gospel, there is a real price paid for sinners who have sinned against the holy God. You, you know the passage of scripture, right? The wages, the wages, the wages of sin is death. And in the gospel and on the cross of Jesus and on the cross, Jesus Christ pays that penalty. He purchases your soul. 
I remember, <laughs> I don't know why I remember this a lot, but I do, this, this, this picture always, oftentimes comes in my mind. I remember um, during the uh, 1980 uh, presidential race, um, during the primaries, uh, Ronald Reagan, then ex-Governor Reagan, um, was at a debate and the moderator, I guess, I, I don't know what was going on or what Ronald Reagan was saying or wasn't saying. Well, the moderator was trying to take the microphone away from him. And, you know, Ronald Reagan was holding on to the microphone. And the moderator's trying to take the microphone away. And as the moderator's trying to take the microphone away, Reagan looks at him and says, I paid for that microphone. <laughs> and how many times have I thought to myself, when Satan tries to snatch someone out of the hand of God. Jesus Christ says, I paid for that one. I paid for that. I, I shed blood for him. I died for her. You're not taking him. And so again, this idea that in the gospel, the price was paid. And that price was the price of the, of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, but the scripture says that, that these men were, were bought. And we, we dealt with that, didn't we, in that, in that ex somewhat extended study on the doctrine of the atonement. We talked about the fact how that there seems to be a, a primary aim of the, of the atonement, which is the salvation of the elect. But there are, there are these secondary and, 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 uh, and, and secondary and tertiary effects of the, God, of, the, of the death of Jesus Christ as well. I oftentimes think of how much in our present day, by way of, by way of our uh, uh, cultural norms, uh, by way of what society thinks is right and just. And there's still a pattern of basic uh, justice in our society. You know, we understand that the, that, that, that the weak are not to be abused. We understand that the poor are not to be taken advantage of. We understand that it's right, good, and proper to help someone out. I'm going to suggest something to you here. I'm going to suggest to you that all of that is the, all of that is the effect of the shadow of Christ being cast on our culture. You see, there were societies where compassion was not a virtue. The Romans were like that. There were societies when pity was looked at as a weak thing. But thankfully, we don't live in that kind of a culture, do we? We live in a society and a culture where we have to watch out for is that compassion is not misapplied or that pity isn't abused. But all that we would, that we would, would we want to be without that? Of course we would not want to be without that. Stop and think of all the ideas of self-sacrifice. Who emulates that more than the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, the shadow of Christ being cast on our present culture. And so there are these larger effects of the death of Christ than just the salvation of the elect. Primarily, it's the salvation of the elect. And so again, the scripture says that Christ, in some way which is still mysterious to me, Christ bought these men. And the other things that we see here by way of why some think that these men were truly saved is because of the descriptions we just gave in verses 20 and 21. Again, the specific words, the, the knowledge of the Lord and Savior. They escaped their corruptions. They known the way of righteousness. They turned, they, they, they had a, something of the holy commandment. And again, they were on the right way for a while. But also, I want you to see this, that there is much in this passage of scripture that causes us to consider that these men were never saved. I want to say that again. There is much in this passage of Scripture to consider that these men were never saved. Now you might ask me, why am I doing this? Why am I giving so much uh, uh, time, if I can put it this way, and I realize I only have so much time on a Sunday morning, why am I giving so much time to, 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 to the idea that these men may have been saved? Well, it's very simply this. I want you to, I want you to engage the passage of Scripture. 
I think I have an understanding of what most of us might feel about this whole matter. And I don't want to just blow through this passage of Scripture and just assume that, you guys, that, that, that everybody understands it in a certain way. But even if you do understand it in a certain way, I want you to feel something of the tension of this passage of Scripture. I want you to deal with it. I really do. But as I said before, I think that there are reasons why we can say that these men were not saved. Number one, in that passage of Scripture, verse one, the Lord that bought them. Well, these men deny the Lord that bought them. You see, whatever they looked like in their essence, in the core of their being, there was a denial of the lordship of Jesus Christ. They wanted nothing to do with it. They will use his gospel to advance their own ends, but they will not submit to his cross to glorify him. I think you've heard me say this before. Sometimes the the difference between sin and self-gratification is so subtle that it's essentially this, that in the moment of a temptation, I choose to gratify self rather than to glorify God. Simple as that. Simple as that. No more complicated than that. In that moment, am I glorifying God or am I gratifying self? And these men say, I'll take gratification of self every time. You see, these men deny the Lord, don't they? And again, they reveal something of their true character. Notice what else we see here. Not only do they deny the Lord that bought them, they bring in heresies that damn. Now, one of the things that I've tried to, to speak about over the weeks is that, you know, we need to understand that, that as Christians, we can embrace the essentials of the Christian faith, and we may differ on secondary things. Those are not heretical issues. But there are heresies, and there are heresies that damn. And these men brought in damnable heresies. And Peter wasn't just using some kind of a, uh, some kind of language uh, just, to, just, just in order to be quote-unquote vulgar. Peter would not be doing that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The word damnable there isn't an expression of vulgarity. It's an expression of reality. The heresies damn. That's why I said these men are a danger to our souls. And so again, they bring in these damnable heresies. They await a judgment that is worse than the judgment that was on the ancient world, the judgment that was on the angels, and the judgment that was on Sodom and Gomorrah. They're described by Peter as brute beast. You see, this is the thing. Their nature never changed. That's why he goes back to the idea of dogs and pigs. They're brute, unthinking beasts. They're animals. They're the servants of corruption, Peter says. They have a covetous heart. And lastly, Peter describes them as cursed children. You see, I think what this passage of Scripture shows, rather than showing that these men were saved, I think what this passage shows is essentially this. These passages show that a man can be in an unconverted state and still bear many of the marks of being converted. As I said, the the parable of the the wheat and the tares. Stop, Stop and think of the parable of the sower. You remember that parable? Very instructive parable. Our Lord, you know, the the man goes out to sow. The seed is the word of God. It goes out. Some of the seed falls on on rocky ground. Nothing really happens there. Other other seed uh, takes a a root for a little bit uh, and and then uh, springs up. Nothing happens to it. Other seed, uh, the the, the weeds choke it out. There's only one seed that brings forth life. But some of that springing up looks like life. You think life is happening. You think something is there. But But in the end, nothing was there. And so again, it's the same thing with those who make professions of faith. We already read the passage of Scripture in uh, 1 John chapter 2, uh, verse, uh, verse 19. And I think the passage of Scripture is so instructive for us and, and, and so necessary. Peter, Peter, John deals with the very issue. 
People who leave the professing church. And what does John say? These men went out from us that it might be manifest that they were never of us. You see, there are those who associate with the visible church who may never be a part of the true church of Jesus Christ. What's the true church of Jesus Christ? <laughs> well, it's not necessarily in Nauset Baptist Church. All right? Now, I hope there are members of the true church of Jesus Christ that are in Nauset Baptist Church. I hope every one of us are. But the true church of Jesus Christ is that body of believers who throughout history have embraced and received Jesus Christ truly as Lord and Savior. It is that same body of believers, brothers and sisters, that you and I are in fellowship with and communion with, with those saints who have gone on before us. That when we gather on the Lord's Day and we sing these hymns to the glory of God, that there is something of the fact that Jesus Christ himself becomes the glorious worship leader of the church on earth and the church in heaven, singing praises to Almighty God. Aren't you glad you're a part of that church? How we thank God for the true church of Jesus Christ. But I also think, again, another passage of Scripture that is very much like this. Just, just um, turn back a few pages to the, uh, uh, to, the, to the epistle of the Hebrews. This is a passage of Scripture that oftentimes is, is a passage of Scripture that we have to deal with. It's a, it's a passage of Scripture very much like this, like this passage in, uh, in 2 Peter here. And this passage of Scripture, again, it's a challenging passage. Very challenging passage of Scripture. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4, and we're going to go down through verse, uh, through verse 9. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Notice what the writer says. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and who have tasted of the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again to repentance, seeing that they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to, to an open shame. You understand what, what the writer is saying here? Look, these all sound like saving experiences, don't they? Notice again, tasted of the good word, verse 5, and of the powers of the world to come. Again, verse 4, made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Peter goes on, excuse me, the writer goes on to say in verse 7, For the earth which drinks in the rain that comes off and bringeth forth herbs, meet for them by whom it is dressed, receives the blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. In other words, something's happening there, but it's not bringing forth the fruit that it ought to be bringing forth. But notice verse 9, and this is the key. How do you understand Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6? You understand it in light of verse 9. Listen to what the writer says. But beloved, we are persuaded of better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. What's the writer saying? Look, there are these things that very much look like real salvation, but come short. But of you, we are persuaded of better things and things that accompany salvation. What are the things that accompany salvation? They are the living out of the Christian faith. They are the perseverance in the faith. They are the continuing on the way of righteousness. They are continuing to be free from the entanglements of the world. They are walking further and further away from the pollutions of the old life. That's the things that accompany salvation. And so what this brings us to, it brings us to the reality that when we consider uh, this whole passage of scripture and everything that's it, and everything that's tied in with it, it reminds us of the fact that the Christian life 
looks like something and what it looks like is, is in one sense contrary to what we see these false teachers doing. I'll bring that, I'll explain that here in a minute. But again, understand what I'm trying to say by way of the theological understanding of the passage. Theologically, I believe that what the passage is presenting to us is that there is a class of men and women, primarily false teachers, who look very much like the real deal but are not. They are counterfeit Christians in every sense of the word. And sometimes they're very hard to, dis- to distinguish between. But here's what, again, this is what we see on the pages of Scripture. I think really in one sense, although there are weighty arguments that many present as to why a person can be saved and then lose their salvation, I think that it is a better handling of Scripture to see and understand that these individuals never were converted. They looked very much like converted people, but they never were. So that brings us now to what I would call the last point in our sermon, which is the pastoral application of this passage of Scripture. We've considered it biblically. From a biblical point of view, as I said before, these, these men, they, 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 they almost look like the real deal. Theologically, we understand that, that these men are not the real deal. But now, how do, we, how do you apply it personally? How do I apply it personally? And then as your pastor, how do I pastorally apply this passage of Scripture? Well, first of all, let me say this. This theological question is a perennial question within the Christian church. It's a question that will probably never be, set, uh, never be uh, will never go away of uh, this side of heaven. I think so long as there are men and women who thinkingly engage the word of God, this question will come up over and over again. But while this is an interesting theological question, and hear me out, never let the basis of this question be true of you and me. What do I mean by that? Let us make sure that we live in such a way that no question ever arises whether or not they were really saved or are they truly saved. You see, let's live in a way where the grace of God is so evident in the life, where the work of the Spirit so compels the soul and the heart, where affection for Jesus Christ causes all rival affections to pass by the wayside. Oh, yes, it's an interesting theological question, but may it never revolve around us. In one sense, let it stay abstract and academic because the grace of God is working so real and so vibrantly within each and every one of us. That's the first pastoral application. But the second application is this. From this passage of Scripture, understand then what the Christian life looks like. From this passage of Scripture, understand what the Christian life looks like. What do I mean? Well, we, see, we saw all these things that were said about the false teachers. Let's put them all now in, the positive, in, a, in a positive perspective. The Christian life then is essentially this. It is obedience to the commandment to repent and believe the gospel. These men, they once knew the holy commandment. Now again, as I said, the holy commandment can be understood as the totality of the word of God, but can also be understood by way of that command to repent and believe the gospel. The Christian life begins with this command, brothers and sisters. Friends, I say, have you obeyed this holy commandment? You see, there is no Christian life without it. To repent and to believe the gospel. Secondly, the Christian life then is this. Notice that the Christian life then is, a, is an escape from the pollutions of this world and a, a continual escape from the pollutions of this world. I remember uh, a man preaching one time on the story of Joseph 
and Potiphar's wife. And, and uh, he was drawing a contrast between Joseph's behavior and many of our own. And he came to that point where Joseph got up and ran out of the house. And he said, the problem with many of us today is that we run away from temptation and then wait around the corner for it to catch up with us. Kind of funny. Can't be joking about the things of the soul, though, can we? The Christian life is a continual escaping from the pollutions of this world. Thirdly, the Christian life contains within it a power to keep one from being entangled and overcome by former sins. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's not mere moral reformation. It is the power of the indwelling spirit of God. I love the passage of scripture in Romans chapter 6. Therefore, sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under the law but under grace. I've put it it like this. Ask yourself the question, how much power, how much authority does death have over Jesus Christ right now? Could in some way death reach up into heaven and snatch Jesus Christ back down? That's not happening. You know that. Do you know that as death has no more authority over Jesus Christ. Are you ready for this? Do you know that sin has no more authority over you and me? That's Paul's point in Romans 6. That even as Christ was raised from the dead, even so we should walk in the power and the, and, 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 and the power of his resurrection. As God raised Christ from the dead by way of that the divine power so that divine power comes to us in our struggle with sin. No more. Compelling power to sin. Tempting power, yes, but not compelling power. And therefore understand that in the gospel there is a power to keep us from being entangled and overcome by our former sins. Did these men once follow the way of righteousness and holiness? Then understand that Christianity is a way of righteousness and holiness. You know, there is this this idea that, that Christianity isn't just something that I can look back and say, yes, I did that. But the Christianity is a living, vibrant experience and relationship with Jesus Christ, whereby we are being kept pure, kept free from the power of sin. Oh, God, make it so. It is the reality of being a new creature and seeing the spiritual development and spiritual life continuing in the soul. You see, that's what that Christian life is. That's why when, when we see about these men, that these men... They acted like what they always were. They, they, they acted like dogs and they did something. They returned to the, to the vomit. Uh, they, 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 they were pigs and they, and they acted like pigs. They returned to the mire. But the Christian, how does the Christian act? What well, can I put it to you this way? The Christian acts like a sheep. Isn't that what Jesus Christ calls his people? And listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. For ye were as sheep going astray, but now are returned unto the bishop and shepherd of your souls. You see, the nature of the animal is going to show itself. And the false teacher as a dog and as a pig is going to show himself. And the true Christian as a sheep of the flock of Jesus Christ is going to show himself. Oh, you see, we may have our struggles with sin. We may find ourselves cast down at times. But there is the great shepherd of our soul. And sometimes, and again, although the picture is going to be changed a little bit here, sometimes like a ram, we have our our horns caught in the thicket. And we cry out and we cry out and here comes the shepherd and he cuts us free and he brings us back. It's our Savior. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what's in the soul of the individual is being renewed and converted. So what this tells us is that there, there is this perseverance that marks the Christian faith. Listen to what one man says about this perseverance. There is a way which they must be put into, kept in, and not depart from it. Ever they reach the kingdom 
which they cannot do for themselves, but must have the conduct of the Spirit of God for it. Therefore, he manages for them effectually. He that said that he would pray the Father to send the Comforter has sent the Comforter. And what he would do for them when he comes, he would guide us into all truth. And so what we see here is that while our grace is weak, and while our corruptions are strong, and while we live in a world where there are snares laid for us, and every day we are open to the assaults of Satan, yet always there is the shepherd who will keep us safe as we go through this world. You see that passage of scripture where the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But what does he say? But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. You know that Jesus Christ even now is praying for you and for me. He's praying that our faith fails not. So what do we do with this passage of scripture then? There's one more pastoral application. What do we do with it? And we have to ask ourselves the question here, don't we? What about our family members and what about our loved ones? What about those who are the continued focus and object of our prayers? What about those that we've raised or maybe those that we've been married to and lived with? What about them? Well, I can only leave you with the passage of Scripture over a few pages in Jude. We mentioned this a, a few weeks back, but I want to I go to this passage of Scripture again just in closing. Notice what Jude says in verses 20. And actually, we can start with verse 18. And I want you to notice how Jude follows the same path as Peter. This is what he says, verse 17 of the epistle of Jude. But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you that there should be mockers in the last time who will walk after their own ungodly lust. Next time we get together in Second Peter, we're going to be talking about the scoffers and the mockers. Look at verse 19. But these be they who separate themselves, sensual, not having the spirit. What's Jude saying about these men? No matter how much they look like Christians, they have not the spirit. He goes on in verse 20. But ye, beloved, and here's the word to you. But ye, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves, number one, in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto our eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a difference. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment that is spotted by the flesh, pulling them out of the fire. My brothers and sisters, the way we pull our loved ones out of the fire is by prayer. The way we pull our loved ones out of the fire is by unending love. The way we pull our loved ones out of the fire is by examples of living for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, my friends, my brothers and sisters, this life is not done. Our loved ones still have breath in their lungs. And therefore, as they have breath in their lungs, and as you have a promise on your lips, do not fail to go, snatching them even out of the fire if need be.